seats and making their way in, but uh, glad that everybody could be here. Glad uh, that you could join us via online uh, streaming. And I just have a, a couple of a quick uh, announcements before we uh, get started and sing to the Lord some wor- uh, through, uh, through some songs and worship Him in that way. Uh, the first is that, uh, uh, well, Christmas is uh, around the corner, and uh, for some of you, you're already filled with stress, and some of you are actually happy about it, which is great. Uh, but uh, this is also the, the time of year where we also take part in a ministry called Operation Christmas Child, which is under uh, Samaritan's Purse. And... Operation Christmas Child is, uh, is about giving uh, different uh, gifts and supply different needs to uh, children across the world, specifically in, in third world countries who don't have the resources that we have, who, don't, uh, who really can't uh, celebrate the, the holidays like, like we can celebrate it here. And uh, the, the idea is to uh, fill the shoeboxes with gifts and supplies uh, and also uh, gospel tracts as well. And as they distribute it through the, uh, throughout the world through Samaritan's Purse, uh, they are, uh, the children uh, are brought to a place uh, where they're celebrating, uh, the gospel is presented, and then afterwards they, uh, they, they receive these boxes. Uh, and along with each box, there comes uh, a, a gospel story as well. So it's a tangible way to, to meet needs and also a tangible way to, uh, to, to share the gospel with these kids. And so uh, this year will be a little different. This, uh, normally we come together to have like a packing party. Uh, because of COVID, we can't do that. So there's two ways that you can get involved. And the first is that uh, you can actually go online to SamaritansPurse.org. There's a bulletin insert in the bulletin that you received on your way in or the ship that should be in, in the seats. Um, but you can go online and uh, for, uh, to, uh, actually I think, $31, which includes a gospel story project, uh, you can build the box online or have them build one for you. And another way is that you can actually grab a box that's up here on your way out at the, at the conclusion of our service, grab a box, and you'll have instructions in there what to put in the box. You can also go on SamaritansPurse.org and find instructions there, there as well. Uh, and you can fill the box on your own and then bring it back. And then the bulletin instrument is a date that you, that, there that you have to be mindful of and bring it back by that date with a check as well. Uh, for uh, for nine dollars, that goes towards the shipping. Uh, further instructions are in the bulletin. Insert if you have any, any other questions, uh, please uh, see Cindy Wood or see myself, and I'll direct you to the right person. Uh, but um, yeah, so if you are interested, grab a box, grab as many as you want, uh, and then we can take part in this ministry. Uh, one other quick announcement: I'll turn it over to uh, my wife. It was an announcement, I think, for the ladies. Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully you've seen emails and announcements on Facebook and possibly in the bulletin, but next Sunday we're having a virtual baby shower for Samantha and Gina. Both of them are due in December, so we really want to celebrate them. It'll be Sunday, next Sunday at 2 p.m. on Zoom, so we'll continue to send out the link, but please feel free to email me if you're not seeing that link anywhere. I also have online registries for them if you want to pick up gifts. You can either have them shipped to their house, which we'll do automatically if you purchase it on their links, or you can get something like a gift card or even just a card without a gift and leave it on one of the tables in the fellowship hall, and I will deliver them on Saturday. So it would have to be here by Saturday for me to deliver to their homes so that they can open the gifts on Sunday during the party. But even if you don't have a gift, please come to the virtual shower. It's a hard year to be pregnant, and we really want them to know that even though we haven't seen you too much, they're being super cautious with COVID, but even though we haven't seen you much, we're super excited that you guys are having this child, and we're going to celebrate you and can't wait to meet this baby. And So yeah, it should be a really fun time, and hopefully a lot of you ladies can join us. 
Man, it's all for the announcements. Let's uh, go to the Lord and sing to the Lord uh, through some songs and worship him in that way. Please stand for our call to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Luke 24. We'll begin in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I, am wi- while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should, sh- should suffer on the th- and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. May this be our heart posture this morning as we bless the Lord and as we worship Jesus, our King. So 
than any comfort. Oh, one who knows all things. 
you receive this praise that we bring this morning, that it would be a fragrant offering to you. And Father, we pray that you be with your servant as he comes to preach your word now. Man, you may take your seats. Let's go to the Lord and spend some time in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the God who created all things, who gave life to everything. You are the God who came to earth to die on the cross and was resurrected and then ascended and is now reigning in heaven. You are the king who reigns forever and ever. And through your death on the cross, you have brought us into your kingdom. You have brought us into the family of God. Lord, and so we acknowledge your eternal reign. And we rejoice that we get to be a part of that heavenly kingdom And we long for the day that we can see you face to face. That we can behold you and adore you and worship you as the king who will always reign. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You are not just a prophet. You're not just a messenger but you are the Son of God, worthy of all praise, worthy of all worship, and the resurrection is proof that you are the Son of God. And by believing in you, we have life. We thank you for the eternal life that you have given to us. We thank you that there is life in us more than just a living and breathing that our hearts are beating, but that there is a spiritual life in us through your death and resurrection. Help us as your people to live out that eternity. 
to remember that eternity is not something that is waiting for us, though it is that, but it is not just that, but eternal life is here, it's today. Help us today to live as kingdom citizens. Help us today to live as those who are joined and united to you by faith. Give us wisdom, Lord. So that we may live righteously. Because righteousness is what characterizes your kingdom. Father, we pray for those who are suffering, for those who are sick, for those who just need a special anointing of your grace. Lord, would you give to them your grace? Give them the strength, the encouragement that they need today. We pray that you would fill their hearts with hope. We pray that you would fill their hearts with encouragement, that they would be encouraged this morning as we sing to you, as we listen to your word, whether they're here, present, or joining us via live stream, we pray that you encourage the saints. We pray also specifically for our dear brother Dennis. We pray for his recovery. We pray for our sister Evelyn. We pray that you may care for her and protect her health. We pray that you would be with her. Father, we pray for our dear sister Ina, who's serving in the Dominican Republic. Lord, we pray that you may help her and provide for her for all that she needs, for all that is needed for gospel and kingdom work. We thank you for, uh, for this building, Lord. We pray that you would provide this building. We pray that you would provide the resources, the workers, everything that they need, Lord, to be able to continue to minister the gospel. We pray that you would provide miraculously on her behalf and those who labor with her for the work of the gospel. We pray against any challenges, any obstacles that may present themselves. We pray that this building would be used for your glorious purposes, for reaching children, for reaching those who do not know Jesus Christ yet as Lord and Savior. Father, we pray for Durham Evangelical Church. We pray for the pastors and elders. For the, We pray for the saints. Lord, we pray that you may fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you may give to them all that they need for life and godliness, that they may continue to be encouraged through the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose from the dead, who purchased our redemption, that there is life in his name. We pray that you would fill the saints with the life that comes through the Holy Spirit. Father, we continue to pray for our country. Father, we pray that you may be gracious to us, Lord. Even though we are undeserving of your grace, there is nothing that we could ever do to merit your mercy, Lord, but we pray that you would have mercy on our country. We pray that you would please, you would please be merciful to us. Given all the violence, the animosity, all the things that we say and do to one another, given just our, our 
our propensity to destroy life in the womb. Father, we pray that you would be merciful to us. That you would be gracious to us. Help us, Lord. Help us to fight for what's right. Help us to fight for life. Help us to fight for the dignity of every single individual. Father, we need you. We need your grace. Father, we need the gospel. We pray that the gospel would saturate every heart of our country. Because the gospel is what is needed most, more than anything else. Only the gospel can transform lives and give us the restoration and peace and stability that we all need. And lastly, Lord, we pray for those who work in the areas of, uh, of engineering. We pray that you would sustain them and help them as they give attention to details, as they work on mathematical problems, as they work with customers, as they work for their employers, as they work in teams. Father, we pray that you may sustain them and give them the wisdom, the knowledge, and understanding. And we pray that you would use them as lights, as beacons of light in the workplace, that you would draw people to them, that they would have the courage and boldness of the Spirit to preach the gospel, their actions and also especially through their words. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning as your people proclaiming that you are the Son of God. We thank you for giving us life in your name. And as those who have, whom you have saved upon that confession, we conclude our time of prayer by praying the prayer that you have taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would please turn to John chapter 20. John 20, verse 31. Sorry, verse 30. We'll read down to verse 31. John chapter 20, picking up in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus as we read through the Gospel of John, and even as we have read in our own personal times through the other Gospels, we see that you have done so many miraculous things during your ministry. And all of these things are intended to point to the truth that you are the Son of God. 
And we praise you and thank you for these signs. And we praise you and thank you for the signs that there is today, namely, and people believing in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us who is here today who have placed their faith, their life upon that confession of Jesus Christ being the Son of God is a testament to the authenticity of not only the Gospels, but to the, also the authenticity of the identity of Jesus Christ. Because only you could have transformed our lives so that we are no longer the people that we used to be. Help us, Lord, as we study this passage, as we reflect on the gospel of John, and may our hearts be rekindled by the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ and what he means for us. We pray in his name. Amen. If you are a a reader, if you like to read books, books, or if you want to be a reader, one book that I always recommend to people is the book titled How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. Now, it's kind of one of those titles that might seem a little condescending or kind of insulting or offensive because it's like for your birthday, me giving you a book titled Humility. Or self-control might imply that you don't have any self-control, so here's a book on self-control. But the title is not intended to be condescending. In fact, the, the, the book is actually really helpful because it has a lot of practical advice and suggestions on how to really absorb and retain a lot of the things that you might come to across or the things that you might learn in the book. Right? And it has some, some tips on how to read faster, but the point of reading a book is not to get through it as quickly as you can, but the point of reading a book is to enjoy it, is to glean some things from it, to even perhaps be changed in some way by the book to learn some things that are new. And one of the things that he suggests in his book is that you should read the preface and the introduction, which most people skip. Now, those are important because in the preface or introduction, well, the author is telling you what you expect. What can you come to expect in reading the book? These are the things that you'll learn. And it's also a, a, a place where the author will present kind of his grand vision or the purpose in writing the book. And this is helpful to keep in mind, and it also helps you determine whether or not you want to continue to read the rest of the book. Now, as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we come to the almost pretty much to the end of the Gospel of John. In fact, we're one sermon away from finishing John's Gospel. And it it isn't until the end that John tells us what his purpose is in writing the book. Which, for writers, is kind of a no-no. Right, you put that towards the beginning. Now, was John kind of uh, maybe didn't really know how to write a book? And I don't think really that's what the case. I think what we see is kind of a stylistic preference. You see, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, and in jo- here John establishes the, he kind of gives what's I come to be known as the, the prologue to his gospel. In John 1, verse 1, it begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the very beginning, John is seeking to establish the eternality of the Son of God. He's seeking to establish the the pre-incarnate identity of Jesus Christ. 
And even in just that, in that short prologue, we see some different themes that we see worked out throughout the Gospel of John. Life, light. And so the idea is to kind of pack in some emotional gravitas, some emotional weight from the very beginning. And I think that would have been lost if he had started his gospel by saying, now, Jesus did many other signs, but these are written for these purposes. Helpful, but it doesn't pack just the emotional, uh, the, the, the emotional weight that you see in those first few sentences. Instead, he leaves it all the way towards the end to tell us, after reading all these things, Jesus did many other things. But this is intended to be a comprehensive detail about everything that Jesus did. But these are written for this purpose. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll do sort of a brief review through the signs that Jesus performs that have written for us in the Gospel of John. And then conclude by talking about the life that we have through Jesus Christ. Now John, in his Gospel... He has, uh, obviously, he says that there's a lot of things that Jesus did, but he's only written a certain amount of things, certain details about the life of Jesus. So we saw also just how much he, he, he kind of takes away or how, how, much, how much he edits out of the life of Jesus. And we saw like a few weeks ago when we walked through the, res- through the resurrection and how when we read the other Gospels, right, it tells us more details about what happened in the, in the resurrection. We see, right, uh, the other Gospel tells that Mary went, and along with other women, it tells us the interactions that happened there. Also tells, the other Gospels tell us that about the angels that were standing above the tomb, and then the stone being rolled away, and the guards that were there, and how they were shocked, and all these things that happened. But for whatever reason, John edits out of his telling of the resurrection, Not only that, but again, John was an apostle of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus. He had been in ministry with Jesus for three years, had seen plenty of things, a lot of things that Jesus did, and yet he condenses all those things to just seven signs. And all of those signs are actually unique to the Gospel of John, with the exception of the feeding of the 5,000. That's one you see in all the other Gospels. But everything else, the turning of water into wine, the... Uh, the healing of the man born blind, the healing of the lame man at the pool, and all these other ones, they're all unique to the Gospel of John. You don't find them in any other Gospel. And so he only focuses, his, focuses on, those, on these seven signs. So he kind of, I, I like to think that John takes kind of a, a minimalist approach. And even though his 21 chapters long, it's not short, it's not the longest of the four Gospels, but even the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the four Gospels, has more content than the Gospel of John in terms of teachings, but also in terms of miracles and signs and works. But John appears to be kind of a minimalist, taking away all the all these, editing out all these other things, just focusing on a certain amount or certain miracles that Jesus performs. Because sometimes... More is not better, right? Steve, the late Steve Jobs adopted kind of this theme that he kind of inserted into Apple, which he really takes from, I think, from Leonardo da Vinci, and that is that simplicity is the highest form of sophistication. That is, when you have more stuff, it doesn't really seem all that great. More stuff might seem more distracting than anything else. But when you focus on just a few things, 
gospel that actually fosters much more creativity. And I think that's what we see in the gospel of John. But I think he's a minimalist. When you, take, when you see a movie, when you sit down to watch a movie, an hour and a half movie, a, a two-hour movie, what you see is the product of months upon months of work. Right? There's all this filming, and then there's, you've got the post-production where they're taking all the film that's been, that's been, that's been recorded and they condense it all. Right? They, they take stuff out, they remove stuff. This doesn't really fit. Actually, this doesn't really get the point across. And they try to condense all that footage into an hour and a half movie. And what you see is the final product. And this is what we see in the Gospel of John. He edits all this stuff out, not trying to be, not trying to deceive people in any way, but he's trying to get to a point. He's trying to, as, as precise as he can, he's trying to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So what you have is a product of intentionality. He picks and chooses what will get the point across the most. Which then leads us to the seven signs. And so, I think it'll be helpful because this is a part of what the purpose of John, to tell us all these signs in order to point to the, the identity of Jesus Christ. So I think it'll be helpful to walk through the seven signs briefly and talk about what, it, what they are intended to tell us about Jesus Christ. So the first sign is the water into wine. Right? This is in John chapter 2. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana. The bride and bridegroom have run out of wine, which uh, would have been utterly disgraceful. But Jesus provides them wine, and the wine, the wine is actually better than the ones that they had before, and the wine seems to never run out. And so what is that intended to tell us about Jesus? Well, if you take the Old Testament and how the prophets prophesied about a new age, they identify the, the new age with new wine. And so wine is intended to be a symbolism of celebration. And so what the prophets are telling us is that a new age was coming, symbolized by new wine. And so what we see in this turning of water into wine at this wedding celebration is that the new age has finally come. That the king and his kingdom have come into the world and that a climatic shift has happened in history. And this also points to Jesus as the bridegroom who's come for his bride, the church. We see that language in Ephesians chapter 5. Like in any wedding, right, the, 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 the bridegroom and the bride, I mean, they absorb the cost of the party, of the celebration, right? I mean, in some cases with the help of friends and, and family as well. But for the most part, the bridegroom and the bride absorb most of the expenses of the wedding. And the guests are, come to, uh, are invited to come and enjoy without paying a thing. And in this way, right, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom who absorbs the cost of the wedding. And that cost that he pays is with his life in order to purchase a bride for himself. And that is the church. And then second, we have the, the healing of the official son in John chapter 4. And this comes on the heels of the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman who then goes on to her village and tells people about Jesus. And then the people come to Jesus and they believe in Jesus. Then we have the story of the, of the official who goes to Jesus. His son is at the point of death. He's on a sickbed, and he's pleading with Jesus to come and visit him, which is at least a two-day's journey. And Jesus says, go, your son is made well. 
And he goes home and he finds that his son is actually made well. And it tells us in the passage that he and his entire household believe. And that miracle is intended to point to us to the fact that Jesus has come not only to save the Jew, but also to save the Gentile as well. That the gospel of salvation is not only, it's not just for a select group of people, but it is for all people. It doesn't mean that, that there is a universal redemption, but it means that the gospel salvation, the offer of the gospel is made to everyone indiscriminately for every tribe and nation and tongue and people group. And it also shows us the power of Christ before he turned water into wine, but here he's nowhere near this child who was sick. He just simply says, your son is made well, and he's made well. So we get a glimpse, more of a glimpse of the power of Christ. Then third, the healing of the invalid in John chapter 5. It was an invalid who we have to understand is probably what, what they mean by invalid is that he is lame from his legs because he's trying to get into a pool that was believed to uh, have healing properties when it's stirred up in a certain way at a certain time, and he couldn't get himself into the pool. So he'd been invalid for 38 years, 38 years without being able to get a job, 30 years without being able to have a, have a wife and family looked down upon by society, and Jesus comes and gives him hope, restores his legs, and he tells him, go home, take up your mat, and, and just and, and walk. And he does. But the important thing about the miracle is not the miracle itself. The most important thing about the miracle is that John tells us that it happened on the Sabbath. And so when the Pharisees, the religious teachers, see the man taking up his mat, walking on the Sabbath, they tell him, why are you carrying your mat? Right, in the Sabbath, you couldn't even pick up a bed, pick up a mat, couldn't pick up anything because it was considered work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He tells them, well, Jesus healed me and told me to take up my bed and walk. Well, this is intended to teach about Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he's not breaking the Sabbath, but he's fulfilling his intended purpose, that it is for the glory of God and it is for the good of man. That we are to love our neighbor during the Sabbath, and this is exactly what Jesus was doing. And then next, number four, is the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, which, by the way, in John chapter 6, there's also the walking where Jesus walks on water. Some people consider this actually as one of the signs. This one, instead of the resurrection, quite frankly, I don't think this one makes... The, everyone understand, Everybody, every scholar, every theologian knows or believes that there's seven signs and that either the resurrection or the walking of water, uh, Jesus walking on the water is one of the signs that doesn't fit. I think it makes more sense to make the resurrection as actual sign of the gospel of John but also in part because there's always, almost always a, a, a discourse attached to each miracle. And the walking of water doesn't have any, any discourse attached to it. So anyways, number four is the feeding of the 5,000. Crowds are following Jesus. Instead of sending them home hungry, he decides to feed them using five loaves of bread and two fish. Thousands upon thousands of them are fed with some left over. Jesus commands the disciples to go over across the sea on the boat. Jesus then catches up with them by walking on the water over there, efficient way to get there than having to <laughs> paddle your way over there. And then the people get on boats and they continue to follow Jesus. And then we get this long discourse about the bread of life. Now Moses, right, plays a pivotal role in salvation history, but also takes an important role in John chapter 6 because they point to Moses. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And they're like, well, prove to us that you are. Give us a sign. And he just gave them a sign. I mean, he just fed them. 
but they're asking for more signs. And Jesus tells them, Moses may have given your forefathers manna from heaven, which actually wasn't Moses, it was God, but God did it through the hands of Moses. But you, your forefathers may have received bread from heaven to sustain them through their wilderness wanderings, but in the end, they still died. I, on the other hand, and the true bread of life come down from heaven so that anyone who eats this flesh and drinks this blood will live forever and ever. Meaning that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever commits his life to Jesus, to living a life of discipleship under Jesus, will live forever. They have eternal life. So Jesus is showing that he is greater than Moses because he is a true bread from heaven. That Jesus is God's provision for the world. So number five, the healing of the man born blind. So we have a man that the disciples go to and ask, ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They understood that this man must be blind for some reason. Somebody in his life must have sinned because otherwise he would not have been born blind. But Jesus says instead, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but he was born this way for the glory of God. And all of that, and then he he's receives his sight and then the people are amazed because this is the man who was born, who was blind, who was begging, and now here he is. He's no longer begging because now he can see. And then the religious teachers, they, they interrogate him. They ask him for questioning two times. They ask his parents, this is really your son who was born blind because we don't really believe him. They say, yes, this is our son. He was born blind. How he sees now, we have no idea. Ask him yourself. And all of that leads to this staggering confession made on the part of this man who was once blind. The religious teachers say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, as for Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So what this miracle is intended to tell us about Jesus is that Jesus is the light of the world who has come into the darkness so that those who are blind may now see. And what we see in this miracle is that this man received more than just his eyesight back. He received spiritual sight. And towards the end of that story, Jesus finds him again. And asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man asked, where is he so that I may believe in him? And he just says, it is, it is he who is speaking to you. And it tells us that the man says, I believe. And he worshipped him. This man received two sets of eyes that day. Physical sight and spiritual sight to see Jesus as the Son of God. And as a result, he believed in him. Then number six, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. 
Now, this passage is just pregnant with so much tension, right? Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, is sick. It's about to die. And Mary and Martha send for Jesus. It takes about at least a couple days to get word to Jesus. Jesus finds out, and instead of going to Lazarus immediately or just saying a quick word and say he is healed, instead he waits four days and purposely waits for Lazarus to die. And only then will he go and see Lazarus. He's already been in the tomb for four days. He has a conversation with Mary and Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. All those who believe in me will never die. And then he commands the stone to be rolled from off the ceiling of the tomb. And he commands Lazarus to come out. And Lazarus does indeed come out. And in this, we see the power of Christ. He who said that he was the resurrection and the life, we see that his statement is validated when he calls out a dead man from the tomb who's been dead for four days to come out of the tomb, and he has no choice but to respond and come back to life and come out of the tomb. But more important than that, this miracle is intended to show us that Jesus is one with the Father. Because Jesus says this out loud so people can hear. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus has the Father's ear because he is one with the Father. And he wanted people to see that, that he is one with the Father. And to prove to the people that he is one with the Father he commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. And this was also intended to be a foreshadow of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the last sign in John's gospel. And as we saw, as we read through the, his, his death on the cross, we see that there was, there was a fulfillment of Scripture, right from the, uh, the gambling of his clothes to... Uh, to his saying he's thirst and being given sour wine, to his, not one of his bones being broken. But all these things are intended to be a fulfillment of Scripture. To point to the fact that this is the Son of God. And then he dies, and as we read, and as we believe that Jesus didn't stay dead, but three days later he rose again from the dead. Proving again that he is the resurrection and the life. That he is the Son of God. Then the purpose of the signs is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That is John's purpose in running his gospel. That is John's purpose in giving us only these seven signs. To try to get this message across as clearly and as concisely as he can. So that the reader may know that Jesus is the Son of God that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Which, by the way, is a message not only for unbelievers, but this is a message for believers as well. Like, we need to be encouraged. We need to stand firm on the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We need the gospel of John 
to further press it into our minds and our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. Because without believing in the Son of God, well, then you have no life. No eternal life. So this is what the signs are intended to point us to. That it may result in life in Christ. So then let's talk about this life in Christ. Life in Christ is eternal life through Christ. That is immortality. Being able to live forever. The Gospels, the New Testament, describe to us a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus Christ will reign, where we will be with him and see him face to face, where there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. Right? That is a reality that is promised to us in the Scriptures. That is what we long for. That is what we have to look forward to. Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes makes the case that life is utterly meaningless if there is nothing after this life. It's actually that it's pointless. That there is, if there is no life after this one, then do whatever you want. Do whatever you want, whether good or evil. You can accomplish great things, but in the end, it'll just be forgotten anyway. You can do whatever you want. You can live for family. You can accomplish do great things. You can start your own business. You can do wonderful things. But in the end, if there is no life after this one, it doesn't really matter. It's all vanity. It's all pointless. But then the author of Ecclesiastes concludes by saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Towards the end, the author comes to the conclusion that, yes, there is a life after this one. So what happens today matters. What you do today matters. It is of significance. Because there is a God who will take every deed and every secret thing into account and will weigh them in the scales. But the most important thing that we can do with our lives believe in Jesus Christ. Not just once, but believing in him every day. Faith is active. Faith is proactive. We believe in Jesus every single day. And that determines what we do with our day. That determines what we do with our lives. And all that to say that eternal life, yes, it's something that is promised to us after this life, but eternal life is the gift that we have now. Eternal life begins now. Eternal life is something that we live out today. Because, and this is the last point, because life in Christ is union with Christ. To have life in Christ is to be united with Christ. You cannot have faith in Christ and be united to Christ and still live as your old self. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right? That your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is subsumed in Christ. Your life is in Christ. But when Christ, who is your life, who is the one who, is, who gives you life, who sustains your life, the one who keeps and protects your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right? Your life 
When you believe in Jesus Christ, your life is bound up with Christ. You're united with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, that chapter begins by saying that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right, the scriptures present to us a category for living dead men, living dead women. That is still living, still breathing, still have a heart that's beating, but dead in a different sense. Dead but still following the course of this world. Dead but still following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. Dead but still living in the passions of the flesh. Dead as in alienated from God. Dead as in no life in God through Jesus Christ. No relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Dead in sins. Given to sin. That is what the scriptures define as being dead. But then later in Ephesians tells us that we have but we've been made alive in Jesus Christ and raised and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Again, speaking to the union we have with Jesus Christ. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, right, you are not your old self. You're dead to your old self. This is what we call regeneration being reborn, a new birth. You're no longer the person that you used to be. Instead, there's a dramatic change that happens in your life where you become a new person. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means, but what it does mean is that your your desires are different than what what they were used to. You have a love for Christ and a hatred for for sin. You have a desire to please God, less of a desire to please yourself. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin like, so that grace may abound? By no means, for how can we who died to sin still live in it? Right? How can those who are alive in Jesus Christ, united with Jesus Christ through the life that they have in him, still be given to those works that are considered dead? Because we're no longer dead people anymore. We're alive in Jesus Christ. And so we bear fruits of that life that we have in Jesus Christ. So Romans 6 continues, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what it means to live unto God, to live to righteousness. We don't live to righteousness in order to earn salvation, but we live to righteousness because we have salvation through Jesus Christ. We are made alive in Christ. We are new persons. We have new identity in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, with one another in love, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's a life that walks in love. That's what it means to be alive 
and to God. That's what it means to be united with Christ. That's what it means to have life in Christ's name. John's overarching purpose is to present to you through these seven signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him as the Son of God, you may have life in his name. We've learned with the Gospel of John the true nature of saving faith. True saving faith is following Jesus Christ and being discipled under him. True saving faith lays hold of Christ as Savior, no matter the situations, no matter the trials, no matter even the suffering. True saving faith in Christ is holding firmly the promise of eternal life with Christ and living out that eternal life that you have with Jesus Christ. And, laying, and holding out to the promise of the full realization of the eternal life, which is guaranteed to us because we are united to Jesus Christ. So this is the life that we have, the name of Jesus Christ, when we confess him as the Son of God. Now this morning we have an opportunity to, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and reflect upon the eternal life that we have in his name by taking communion together. So if you haven't yet, uh, there is uh, uh, communion cups and the little wafers in the back. If you haven't gotten one of those yet, please feel free to get up and grab one of those. But this, again, thinking about the wedding in Cana and the wedding celebration and what that points to, we take the bread and the cup, one, because Jesus commands us to, as often as we, as we can when we are meeting together. But, these, but this, this tells us something. It points us to the death of Christ. Christ who tells us to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, though we may have life in his name, as believing in him. And so this is intended to point us to the death of Christ on the cross, the blood that was shed on our behalf, the remission of our sins. We take this in remembrance of that, but we also take this as something that we look forward to in the future, a day that we long for when we will be joined with Christ. We will be seated at the great banquet with the bridegroom. We will all be finally united fully and perfectly to the bride who is the church. And we can come together and take this feast together, this new wine, as a celebration of our union with Jesus Christ and living eternally with him. This is what this is intended to point us to. And we long for that. We anticipate that. And we pray for the Lord Jesus to hasten that day. Right? And the ones who are invited to the celebration are those who are part of the family of Christ through, through, through faith in him. So if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if your life is characterized by the holiness and repentance that he requires, if you have received the baptism, then you are encouraged and you are welcomed to take this meal with us. But if you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and having life in his name, then the scriptures tell us that you are still dead in the trespasses and sins. You're con you, that you are currently walking in those trespasses and sins. And your life may be wonderful. You may be an incredibly generous and good person. 
but a life void of God, a life that is not with, no, with God or with, without Jesus Christ as a consideration, with a, a life that is not giving gratitude to Jesus Christ is still considered a life that is dead. But if that's you this morning, today is the day that you can be made alive with Jesus Christ by believing in him, by trusting in him. You can have life in his name and be included a part of the family of God and have this guarantee, this promise that one day you'll be joined to Jesus Christ and take this meal with him, with the family of Christ. So what we'll do first is we'll take the, the bread and then the cup. We'll include with a prayer, then we'll finish off with a couple songs that we'll sing unto the Lord. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, For I received from the Lord what I delivered also to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and given thanks and broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God. And by believing in, him, in you, we have life. We have life in and through you because you have given your life for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sacrificing your own life so that we may have life. Thank you for being the bread of life so that you can satisfy our appetite for righteousness, our appetite for eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for opening up our eyes to see you as our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for causing us who were once invalids to be able to walk again, to have life, to have this restoration. Thank you, Jesus, because you do not have to be physically present with us to heal us. But if we just believe in you, you heal us, you restore us, you give us life in your name. We thank you, Jesus, because you are the resurrection and the life. And all those who come to you in faith receive life. It will one day be resurrected unto eternal life. And we look forward to that day. We pray that you would hasten that day. Where we would be resurrected to eternal life and take this meal with you with our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and worship with us.
of the hope that we have in Christ, we have assurance of our future. Spirit washed in his blood. 
As we come to our time of benediction, I thought it appropriate to end with a doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept for secret long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed until we return again, Lord willing.